0: Welcome to another episode of Emerging Environments. Today on the podcast, we welcome Professor Chelsea Rockman. Chelsea is an assistant professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Toronto. She studies the sources, fates, and ecological implications of anthropogenic pollutants in freshwater and marine ecosystems with a large focus on microplastics. Her work has been highly impactful in the developing field of microplastics research where she has conducted empirical and synthetic research that has advanced experimental methodologies and informed both environmental policy and public awareness of the issue.
1: In our interview with Chelsea, we talked about the ubiquity of microplastics in the environment. Microplastics are everywhere. They are not only found in aquatic systems, but also in the atmosphere. And the potential negative impacts of these particles and the associated chemicals on ecosystems are a growing concern. As such, plastic pollution has been getting much more public attention lately. Chelsea shared some of her thoughts on the various approaches being considered for a global policy framework to curb the manufacturing of plastics and mitigate the accumulation of microplastics in the environment. She also talked about some of the public awareness raising her lab is engaged in via the U of T trash team. So with that, let's get to our interview with Chelsea Rockman. Chelsea, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So before we get into talking about your research on microplastics and freshwater ecosystems, we'd first love to hear about how you got to where you are now. So maybe you could give us a little bit of history, maybe tell us where you grew up and and how you became interested in environmental issues.
2: Sure, yeah, so I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, uh, in the desert. Mm -hmm. and I was always interested in the environment. Like, as a kid, we would volunteer for recycling, keep Tucson beautiful, I think it was, and we'd go and help with recycling, sorting, and cleanups, and that type of thing, and I always really loved it. So, from a young age, I have assignments where I was writing speeches about plastic or paper bags or something of that sort, but when I first went to university, I was not a science major. I was doing performing arts and uh, did like seven year roundabout through undergrad to finally get myself to where I am now. I took a marine biology course and I just loved it. And so from that moment on, which was maybe like fourth year of my seven years of undergrad, I felt (laughs) like I knew what I wanted to do. Um, And then I studied abroad. Once I was doing marine ecology, I studied abroad In Australia. And um, we were doing a field course. And we were on this island called Stradbrook Island. Nobody lived there. It was a research station. And on the research station, or well, first of all, on the beach, there was just garbage everywhere. And then in the research station, there were turtles being rehabilitated. And they were basically pooping out plastic in order to then kind of be let go to go out into the sea. And I was fascinated by this. I was always interested in trash, but I'd never combined it with this love of the ocean. And so I had a teacher who gave us an assignment for the course, and it was write a proposal, a research proposal about anything in the world. And I Googled plastic, and I Googled ocean, and I came across the garbage patch that was introduced Mm. in the LA Times, actually in 2006, in a Pulitzer Prize winning article. And I started looking at the science on that, and I wrote a proposal, and I never looked back. So I kind of, actually, my PhD was very similar to part of that
1: proposal. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, and so now you're at UVT, T and your research focuses on microplastics, but in freshwater ecosystems primarily, right? Can you, can you describe yeah. how that transition um, came to be? Sure. Yeah. So I do, I have a PhD in marine ecology. Uh,
2: so I did start all my work in the ocean, but I, so I was really interested in plastic pollution. I got my PhD working on it, um, starting in the ocean. My first ever research expedition was to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch in the North Pacific in 2008, I think it was. And it was my first summer in grad school. And, you know, getting there, the news had sort of described it as this kind of island of garbage that you could walk on, that you could scoop up and clean Mm -hmm. out. And um, it looks nothing like that. When we got there, you know, you do have these big plastics here and there, these big pieces But on a clear, calm day, when you're in the middle of the garbage patch, as far as the eye can see, it just looks like this confetti of small pieces, smaller than the size of a pencil eraser. Mm. And I already knew I was interested in microplastics, but this made me like, it really solidified my interest in the small stuff, seeing just how abundant it was and seeing how you really couldn't clean that up. And we had people out there with us from a nonprofit that wanted to clean it up and realizing that all of the solutions are on the shore. And so over the course of my career, I started becoming like coastal and estuarine. And then suddenly I was working in rivers. And now here I am on the Great Lakes. And the reality is that a lot of the plastic starts here on land Mm -hmm. and in the freshwater, Mm -hmm. And it goes out into the ocean where it's a bit more of a dilute ecosystem. So the ocean is the ultimate sink. But I'm really interested in the application of science and so I'm interested in in the sources and how it affects these freshwater ecosystems that have more anthropogenic influence and stress arguably than the ocean because they're less dilute we live mm-hmm. around them mm-hmm. um so here I am working in freshwater doing a combination of I most of my work is now in freshwater which is funny but um but
1: I love it I'm happy mm-hmm. yeah and you're certainly in a good place to do it relative to uh Tucson, Arizona, I guess.
2: (laughs) Yes, we don't have too much water in all of the rivers in Tucson that are perennial or because of wastewater. So, um, yeah, so this is a great place to be.
1: So can you tell us a little bit more about microplastics and what those are? You know, you mentioned, you know, we have this idea about plastics in the environment, like the garbage patch that there's these giant floating like water bottles or things like that. But what are microplastics exactly?
2: Yeah. So the literal, like literally what they are, are small pieces of plastic. So as plastic either gets into the ocean or into the freshwater ecosystem, and it breaks down over time into smaller and smaller pieces. So if you've ever done like a beach cleanup and you pick up an old plastic bag, sometimes you watch it just kind of fall apart into those Mm -hmm. tiny pieces. So it's literally just anything smaller than five millimeters in size, which is about the size of a pencil eraser. But the majority of what we see in our lab is, you know, smaller than a human hair. It's, it's, we look at it under a microscope. So over mm-hmm. time, these plastics break down into smaller and smaller pieces. But then there's also some sources of microplastics where they're actually produced that way. So the microbeads that used to be in face washes and toothpaste as an abrasive, mm-hmm. uh, they still are in some cleaning products. Uh, the raw material, that We use to make plastic looks like a little pellet and those often end up in the environment. So there are some sources where they like start off as a produced tiny thing. But by and large, every most pieces of microplastics out there have broken down from a larger product in use or a larger piece of litter that's been in the environment for a while.
1: hmm. And yeah. and so, where do these microplastics come from? In in the sense, like, how do they get into the environment? I guess so. They're you know, if we dispose of a plastic bag or something like that, can they leach into the environment from the landfill itself, or is it mostly just kind of their litter that hasn't made it into a landfill, for example?
2: Yeah. Well, so by asking that question, you open up a treasure box of sources because there are <laughs> many. Uh, but so yes, anything that becomes litter in the environment that is either littered or just mismanaged waste, because in certain places around the world, we don't necessarily have that kind of garbage collection and, and clean um, we'll, can will eventually break down into smaller and smaller pieces of microplastic. But the majority of what we see in the environment here in Toronto are either microfibers, which is like little bits of fibers that come off of our clothing, and so those mm-hmm. enter the environment from wastewater, from like our washing machine effluent that then goes mm-hmm. to a treatment plant, and some of it goes into the environment mm-hmm. through dryer vents, um, and then also just through like the applicate, you know, like right now I'm sitting in my office. I have plastic carpet. I'm sitting in a plastic chair. Over time, as that material breaks down, the dust circulating in my office, a lot of it is microfibers. So they end up in the environment that way. The other thing that's really common is tire dust. So every time we drive, ride our bikes, little tiny bits of tires come off into the environment. And so if I go out and I sample in the Humber River or in the Don River, I find hundreds of pieces of tiny black bits of rubber, which are the tire rubber coming from our car. So those are kind of the greatest microplastic emission sources.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and here in Toronto, we also have a bit of a plastic pellet issue where in our samples down on the waterfront and in the rivers, we find a lot of little pellets coming from industry upstream that are using them to make plastic products. So we're also ch- kind of trying to work with them on how do you reduce those? But um, there's a lot of, a lot of sources and the different pathways, I think are stormwater, wastewater, agricultural runoff, and then litter.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's really interesting to think about, you know, the atmospheric source of microplastics that ultimately end up in in the oceans. That's crazy.
2: No, I agree. (laughs) When I started working on plastic, it was all about how much was in the surface water, how much was in the sediment at the bottom and the animals. And today we now understand that it's so ubiquitous and persistent that you have these microplastics cycling in these global planetary cycles. You have it in the water cycle. It comes up with the sea spray. It can enter into the clouds. It can rain down. Um, You have it in the carbon cycle because it is carbon. So it's also cycling with carbon through our planet. It's in the global dust cycle. Um, So it's really quite a different contaminant. You know, in the beginning, I was thinking of it as litter. And now mm-hmm. I think of it as like this persistent organic pollutant, the way we think mm-hmm. of these other contaminants like PCBs and pesticides that are persistent and, and circulate with, within our planet.
0: Mm-hmm. So it seems like microplastics are getting, you know, well-deserved attention both by the public and the media and even governments now. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what do you think is kind of driving that that major attention that it's getting? And I think it's mainly the influence that's having on human physiology long term effects that kind of thing what, what do you think's responsible for its its uh, prevalence and attention
2: yeah it's a good question um i'm not sure that i know what's responsible but the patterns i kind of saw over time i started working on plastic pollution around 2007 2008 and um, it was only starting to pick up some attention in the media, but mostly people only knew about it if they lived on the ocean, if they'd heard of the garbage patch. Um, it wasn't something people were thinking about all the time. In um, But around that time, people started coming into the field. Like, you know, some of the first researchers onto the plastic pollution scene were right around kind of 2000 to 2010. And more research was starting to come out. And in 2015, um, Jenna Jambeck was part of a publication that showed that through a model, they estimated that 10, what was it, 8 to 12 million metric tons of plastic entered the ocean every year. Mm -hmm. And by this time, I think plastic had kind of gotten quite a bit of media attention in terms of the ubiquity of it in the ocean and in animals. And people were starting to ask questions about human health, Mm -hmm. but that statistic for some reason became the statistic of the year. I heard it on the global stage at like UN conferences and our ocean and these different like big policy, you know, kind of like the sparkly conferences that happen every year. Mm -hmm. And, um, ever since then you started to hear Uh, industry recognizing it was an issue that needed to be worked on versus saying like, well, you know, like it's like just, I'd say before that time they, they weren't, they were listening, but they were kind of batting it away. Uh, Mm -hmm. Governments starting to get on board from all over the world, thinking about what to do researchers jumping into the field. And I'd say that by like probably around 2015 to 2020, you started to see like a fully fledged research topic and, uh, governments around the world talking about it. So I don't know what caused it. I, I do think though, the difference with plastic pollution from other issues is it's visible. It's really easy for the public to understand what this is because you can see it. Whereas with climate change, it takes until now when you actually see mass wildfires and drought. Um, so we're lucky in the sense that you can see it before it's too late. Yeah. Uh, whereas with climate change, it seems to be a little less less like yeah.
0: that. And in, in terms of how they proliferate through ecosystems, can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, is it bioaccumulation or are there certain taxa that are more susceptible? Yeah,
2: that, That's like one of my favorite research questions because it's it's actually kind of hard to answer. Uh, it mm. seems like um, for microplastics, it seems like almost every species eats it or it goes through their gills. Like we tend to see it in they're in a, the gut content of almost every every animal, and it doesn't seem to matter whether they feed from the bottom or they um, open up their gills and eat every you know filter feed the plankton as it goes by, or whether they selectively pick particles, or whether they're the top predator. Like it seems like every animal is eating the stuff. So we haven't really, we haven't you know we've done lots of studies where we try to see whether it matters like what they what they feed on, mm-hmm. and it the patterns are all over the place. Um, So I think it just depends on how much is in the ecosystem, how much they're going to be exposed to. Then the question you asked is, like, does it bioaccumulate? Is it increasing up the food chain the way these other chemicals do biomagnification? Seems like it doesn't. For it to bioaccumulate, so for like PCBs or pesticides, right, DDT, It leaves the gut, it goes into the fat and it increases over time in the body. But this is a particle. So it has to leave the gut and physically transport into the body, stay there. And then the next animal that eats it, it has to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So we do see it leaving the gut and going into tissues. We don't tend to see an increase with age in an animal. So we don't tend to see bioaccumulation. It almost looks like you have the opposite because I think most plastic will be just excreted. Um, And we don't see increases with trophic level. So Mm. it seems to be that some of these first principles we understand with organic chemicals, it's different. And so we are super from like a blue sky science, basic science question. I'm really interested in the fate of, of microplastic within an organism and also within a food chain.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we had spoken with uh, Rick Smith uh, not too long ago. I don't know if you're familiar with his, his work, so yeah. hes was in, he was with environmental defense for a long time. So he's very interested in, in microplastics as well. And in our chat, he mentioned um, a couple studies that are emergent, I guess in the human side of how microplastics are you know affecting us. And I think there's a couple studies where they've demonstrated um, transference across the blood-brain barrier. Is that part of your your radar?
2: It's part of my radar. I work on fish and yeah. other animals, but I, um, but yes, it is just like it is translocating into the blood and the tissue of fish. It is also in humans. So we found it, I think it's been reported in lungs, in the blood, um, the blood brain barrier, I think is a mouse study, like a mammalian model. Oh, okay. Um, but absolutely like it is really, it is contaminating our bodies beyond our gut. Right. So when I say it's not bioaccumulating, I'm just meaning doesn't seem to be increasing with age, but yeah. it is certainly getting into our body. And then the question is how much is too much and what does too much mean? You know, like what are the effects? And so for human health, we're in the very beginning of that frontier. Whereas yeah. for ecosystems, I think we're starting to get a better understanding of what is that threshold and, and what are the effects that we observe?
0: Yeah, there's such important questions, because it's, you know, as as your work and others has demonstrated, they're everywhere. So it's something that, you know, we need these answers quickly. And so it's there's no surprise that uh, a lot of attention is being being directed this way, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Can I ask a a follow up question um, about, you know, the bioaccumulation question? So I don't know if you've kind of referred to this, but is it possible that as exposure decreases that you know the microplastic concentration in a species in a fish for example goes down is that kind of what you're seeing so we're trying to understand it can happen
2: in two ways why you would see kind of a decrease with growth and so if it's what you said which is where the exposure decreases well I, in both ways right so it's either that they so once it's translocated out of the stomach we don't know how and whether it's excreted so once it gets beyond the gut how can an animal excrete it does it actually go the other way we don't know so it could be that you're seeing a decrease over time because it's excreted but my hypothesis is that that's not happening or not mm-hmm. what's not the reason and then instead it's like a growth dilution mm-hmm. so as the organism is growing and putting on body mass it's doing that quicker than it nice. is actually passing microplastic out of its gut and into its body. But I don't nice. know. These are experiments mm-hmm. that I've been trying to think about. How would we test that? And then mm-hmm. taking on students that like, kind of take up leadership in those scientific questions.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Can you tell us about some of the work you're doing in your lab right now with some uh, PhD students and master students?
2: Sure. Yeah. So we sort of have... I guess, like different themes. Uh, One is methods. I never thought I would be a person who develops methods, but the field is new and uh, regions are trying to figure out how do you monitor and how do you do that across different matrices like water or sediment or whatever it is. So we spend a lot of time trying to work on method development for how do you sample in the field? uh, How do you do high throughput quantification and characterization? Are there better ways to figure out polymer types? So we do a lot of that stuff. And that's usually with Um, kind of research either with postdocs in the lab or people that are hired as research scientists. And then uh, with students, we do a lot of work trying to understand the ecological effects of microplastics. So I have a student, um, Moni Hamilton, who's working in the Arctic. So she's trying to understand microplastic in uh, habitats where you have Arctic char and how that might affect the Arctic char and how that may expose people who live there as, as country food. Um, I have a student, Rachel Giles, who's working in rivers and trying to understand how microplastic um, and other contaminants get into rivers and how that impacts the ecosystem. And then I have a big project where I have a lot of people working at the Experimental Lakes area. And so for people that aren't familiar with the Experimental Lakes area, that is a research station that was set up, um, gosh, over 50 years ago. It was a big plot of land that was set aside by government to try to understand long-term ecological effects or monitoring in freshwater systems. So it's about 50 boreal lakes that are set aside for research. And some of them are just sampled all the time to understand long-term trends. Some of them you can manipulate. So you can do things like big limno corral experiments where you're dosing parts of the lake with microplastics and you're seeing how do they move around in the ecosystem? How do they impact the zooplankton and the fish and even the primary productivity? So a lot of the people in my lab are working on that project and trying to understand how the microplastics kind of move around and
1: affect an aquatic ecosystem. So you mentioned earlier that there's kind of an emerging understanding of maybe how much plastic is too much in some ecosystems. Can you talk a little bit about that and what what your research has found?
2: Sure. Yeah. So uh, there's been a few different researchers that have tried to basically say, If we had to do a risk assessment for microplastics, how would we do it? And part of that's because governments are asking for it. So Bart Coleman's has led a lot of this work in the Netherlands because the EU has been asking for a risk assessment. He was part of a working group that I co-led with the Southern California Coastal Water Research Project because California was saying we need a risk assessment. And now we're about to start something similar with the International Joint Commission in the Great Lakes. But basically what the work has done is taken a lot of the the toxicity tests that different groups have done in the laboratory to say, um, how much microplastic, what is the dose that affects whatever organism they're working on to, to cause some effect. And then they put kind of synthesize all that data together into like a big model and a species sensitivity distribution to show, you know, at this concentration, this percent of the species are affected at this concentration, this percent of the species are affected. And so Bart sort of led a lot of this work, Bart Coleman's, and then we've all sort of been adapting with him kind of what he's been doing to bring them to different locations. So in California, we came up with different thresholds of risk and they really ranged from concentrations that are actually found in the environment where you have higher concentrations. So some of the, the lowest threshold I see right here in Lake Ontario to kind of the highest threshold where you would say, now you're in kind of maybe an impaired water body. I could tell you the actual numbers, but I'm not sure how much they would mean. Um, I think the most important thing is that, like, I would say within ecosystems where I I work, where you have a lot of inputs of microplastics and kind of relatively higher concentrations, maybe 10% of the samples that we take are over that threshold, which says to me that we need to do something now, like it is urgent. And I'm glad that governments are starting to do something and we definitely need to push at every level. Um, but it's not yet too late the way it mm-hmm. might be with mm-hmm. other issues. And so I feel that that's a, a good thing, right? And that we mm-hmm. can mm-hmm. continue to do things so we don't get to those, those higher thresholds.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I know this kind of term has been you know thrown around a lot with different environmental problems but like it seems in some ways as you mentioned earlier like this is a wicked problem in the sense that how do we remove <laughs> these plastics once they're in the environment and um, so I guess the the key is to prevention right so um, so maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about methods or approaches that are being um used to, to prevent microplastics from entering the environment.
2: Yeah. I think with this issue, there's no one size fits all solution. There's a lot of different things that need to happen at the same time. And I think a lot of people are grappling right now with kind of what is, what do we need to do and what's the best thing we need to do and how soon do we need to do it? And the UN right now is basically agreed that they're going to have an international agreement on plastic drafted by 2024. So they're deciding right now what that looks like. Mm
1: -hmm. In my
2: head, I guess I would kind of like bin solutions into three categories. And that one is waste reduction. And that includes the reduction of plastic that's produced. But also if you're creating a circular economy and the plastic is not going into a landfill and becoming waste, but it's always going back into a product. I also see that as waste reduction. Mm. So, And then the second one is um, waste management. So that just means I don't care if you recycle it or you put it in a landfill, but you do not allow it to be littered into the environment. And what you and I don't tend to think about often, because we live in North America where a lot of waste is managed,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: is that like here, I think the number is that we the number by the World Bank is that like 99% of our waste is managed. Um, mm, mm-hmm. We have curbside collection and everything goes to landfills if it's not recycled, but in d- different parts of the world in like say low income economies, the average is 6% managed. Mm. So one bin is just curbside collection, engineered landfills or bringing it to recycling facilities or something so that the end of life is not the d- like a dump or an, or the environment. Mm-hmm. So that's number two. And then number three is cleanup. And that's a tricky one, but you can clean up the big stuff. And I think Mm -hmm. all three need to be happening at the same time. So of course we need to prioritize source reduction hundred percent, right? We're not going to do it without producing less of the material and changing, fundamentally changing the plastic economy so that it is circular. So we are both reducing the amount of plastic we make and the amount of waste we produce. Um, But then at the same time, we need to be managing it better because we can't build a circular economy if you're not collecting it and managing Mm -hmm. it. And then right now there's a lot in the environment and that should be uh, cleaned up. So I hope that any international agreement that is agreed upon includes everything and is truly kind of a holistic picture at the whole plastic economy, because right now you have kind of this fractured industry where you have people making the plastic that don't always talk to the people who collect it and do waste management which is necessary to feed markets for recycling. And so if you don't have plastic being made to be recycled and the people who are going to collect it to get it into that facility, the whole thing falls apart. And right now, as you probably heard, we recycle less than 10% of all plastic produced and that's appalling. And that's why people say recycling is a failure. Mm, it can mm-hmm. be part of the solution, but it has to be done much different than it's being done now.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, uh, like in the ozone depletion community, we think about CFC banks and these residual banks that are leaking CFCs to the atmosphere. And so I'm just thinking about what you were saying earlier about you're sitting on your chair, plastic chair and you've got your plastic carpet. And so is there any thinking about how to deal with these banks of plastic that are still kind of Releasing these small microplastics into the atmosphere? So that's a great question.
2: I, you know, one thing I think will not probably come out of this international agreement is the microplastic that's being produced through wear and tear. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a lot of policy going on around the world about banning certain items so that you have less waste, about creating a circular economy by forcing recycling through incentivizing or recycling regulations and cleanup, but you don't have much being discussed about materials that shed less or say filtering stormwater, cleaning stormwater or better wastewater treatment plants and that type of thing. And so um, I feel like it's fair to say that we have to solve, the. there are almost two different problems and I would struggle to think how they could put them all into one agreement. But this is a piece where I always try to talk to governments like, hey, we can't forget about this, even if it's kind of being shelved for now, we need to remember to come back to this. And the other thing about CFCs that I think about a lot is that through the Montreal Protocol, it was you could just ban it and technology force a new material. And I'm not sure that we can just ban all plastic and technology force a new material. But maybe you could have something like Stockholm Convention where you have like a dirty dozen and you have those Mm. plastics that maybe should be taken off the market and plastics that are better actors because they can be recycled and they are less harmful in the environment and that type of thing. So it'll be really interesting to see whether the international agreement is like Stockholm-esque or Mm. whether it's more like a Paris accord um, where you're trying to reduce emissions by everyone pulling on all the different levers in the toolbox. So Mm. I don't know, but I think about CFCs a lot when I (laughs) think about this.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, certainly a a different problem, you know, and, uh, but yeah, I, and I hope in a way it's, it's not Paris agreement-esque that doesn't seem to be working so well. So we'll see, but, um, interesting. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. So, so in addition to your teaching and research, you also engage in some outreach activities with the U of T trash team. Can you tell us about how that initiative came to life?
2: Sure. Yeah. So when I was trying to kind of figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wasn't convinced I wanted to be a professor. Uh, I was torn between like going into policy and running for office or starting a nonprofit organization. And so I had done some thinking and actually had written like a whole plan on if I started an NGO, what would it do? Um, And so I kind of had this in my back pocket of what it would be. And as I started, I moved to Toronto and started looking at um, things that I could get involved in here, I reached out to a friend, Susan Debert Zenni, who worked at the Great Canadian Shoreline Cleanup. And we started talking about like, could we start an organization in Toronto? And we brought in another friend, Rafaela Gutierrez. And like together, we sort of co-founded the U of T trash team. And so it was built in 2017. It's been like baby steps to build it to be what it is. But today it's a full, fully fledged, organization with about 100 volunteers, which are mostly undergrads and grad students from across Toronto. Um, We have sort of three pillars, which includes education, community outreach, and then really, really like applied science. Um, And we work with the city and we work with different organizations around the community to, uh, so for example, we have school programs running with the TDSB that are in fifth grade classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, we work with Ports Toronto for trash capture devices. So we have sea bins along the waterfront. We have litter traps in the storm drains with TRCA. Um, so we have this whole kind of floatable strategy. That's a big consortium of organizations trying to get litter out of the waterfront and, um, And then students come to us with ideas that they have. So right now students are building a video series, educating the public about plastic. And that's like, that's their baby. And we just facilitate it to kind of let it fly. So Mm -hmm. um, it's really fun. It probably takes up 50% of my time, Um, but it's a blast. And I never wanted to be just a scientist. So it really allows us to kind of get the science out into the community and work locally to make change. So
0: it's Mm -hmm. fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing some of the social media posts about it, I think, last summer and the summer before, about things you were doing in, in the harbor. Um, I can't remember exactly. Was it you were trying to test water flow in the harbor for certain?
2: Oh, we were putting, yeah, GPS-tagged bottles. We were throwing plastic bottles into the – we have got them back, but into the water yeah. and seeing where they went.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about your teaching and, and how – or if microplastics science and policy factors in it all, are you, are you able to bring it into the teaching that you do, or is it, or do you teach more sort of, you know, theoretical applied ecology, you know, more generally?
2: Yeah. So I currently teach, um, the first course I got here at U of T was a breadth course for non-science majors and it was ecosystems in the human footprint. So it was all about um, anthropogenic stressors, like basically how we're affecting the planet and teaching about ecosystems, but also talking about what we're doing to it and how we're solving it. So, I definitely did have a lecture on plastic pollution. And when mm-hmm. we talked about solutions, we also, uh, that was one of the things we brainstormed. So, it was climate, fisheries, and plastic. So, I did bring it into that course. Um, I'm teaching a marine ecology course this fall. So, it'll be the first fourth year marine ecology course that we offer. And uh, I will do a kind of a section on conservation. And I think I might do some kind of mock trial or hearing on the international agreement for plastic. So I do try to sneak it in. I, I don't want to assume that my students want to hear all about it. So I try to limit it to like one lecture or a couple activities, but, um, but yeah, I mean, nowadays it's like, there's been some new Marine textbooks that have put it in, you know, at least highlighted on a page. So, um, but it would be fun to teach a course on it, like a seminar, but I haven't haven't done that.
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of students would be fascinated because it's this burgeoning field with all this new science coming out and so many unknowns as well, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. you're right on the cutting edge of it. So I, 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 I think that'll come up in the future, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, so before we let you go, I wanted to jump back to something you said at the beginning uh, where you mentioned you were on a performing arts track at one point. <laughs> In
2: the Senate.
0: No, that's that's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. So, first of all, can you what was that about? And then also, do you think you are able to apply any of that in, in either mm-hmm. your teaching or your research nowadays?
2: Yeah, yeah. So that was about. Uh, so I had done theater from first grade on, I had always been doing acting and I had done some dance and played the piano and did some singing and that type of thing. And when I went to undergrad, it's actually started out in atmospheric sciences. I was super interested in climate and weather Mm -hmm. and university of Arizona was quite good for that is where I started my undergrad and then they dropped the program. And so I kind of flailed a bit and I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll go back into this acting thing. So I spent a year in university taking, um, music classes and piano and choir and doing media arts and kind of going back into that performing arts world. And then I thought, why am I in school to do this? I'll just drop out and move to Los Angeles and try to become an actor. So, um, I did that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
2: that's how yeah. it made, got me to California. So I would might right. not have found my way to the ocean had I not done that. So I spent <laughs> one year trying in Hollywood and it was awful. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um,
2: not the vibe for me. And then I went back to school. I went to Santa Monica College, a junior college in Southern California. And that was where I took the marine biology course. And I loved it. So I transferred into UC San Diego where I got my degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is why my seven years of undergrad, because there were three univers- or, yeah, three different universities and multiple majors. Um, but once I got to UC San Diego, I never like, I was so set. And at this time, I was a little older, which helps. You know, I had some life mm-hmm. experience. I had tried some things, failed at some things. Um, so I actually don't regret it at all, but, um, it is funny. Cause now I have no desire uh, to act ever again, <laughs> like really beat it out of me. Yeah.
0: I, <laughs> but your, uh... your
2: other question was, how does it help? It does. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time I ever gave a scientific talk, I remember I went to a conference. I was terrified first year of grad school. Suddenly I, you know, I have, to, I've been in front of people a million times, but now I had to like sound smart and talk about my own work. And I flipped into character. Like I just like, I got on, on to the, it's not a stage, but at the podium Mm -hmm. and I just like became someone else and I gave my talk and then I became myself again. And so like I, during the talk, I felt great. I wasn't shaking. Everything was good. And then at the end asking questions, I was like shaking Mm -hmm. again, but uh, it helps a lot with teaching and communication and media, even like what we're doing right now, the ability to just do this type of thing with being comfortable. And, um, Mm -hmm. so hugely beneficial. Again, like I don't regret it, but I am embarrassed about it. I don't bring it up very often. So oh, I, <laughs> I,
0: I asked because I, I had a similar trajectory where I played in a band for 10 years and then came back to finish my undergrad and then the PhD. And, uh, so very similar trajectory. <laughs>
2: I mean, I think right brain, right? Like I think, there. Well, I don't know if there's really a right brain, left brain, I'm a scientist, but I think like that creative <laughs> side helps in the sciences
0: definitely oh, sure. yeah mm-hmm. we had a student uh, a few years back she was a uh, sort of an improv actor and she held some uh, little seminars and classes for for students to try and you know work those muscles and just just become more comfortable thinking on your feet and mm-hmm. i think they really mm-hmm. appreciated it and you know in job interviews and in just in general work and teaching i think it's it's definitely invaluable so it'll be, I don't think you need to be ashamed of it.
2: Well, I don't need to be ashamed. Well, I can be ashamed of some of it, but I definitely like, I have taught some science communication courses here in workshops and I always make them do improv and theater games. And I think yeah. it's brilliant for that, but it is embarrassing when you drop out of school and move to.
0: <laughs> <laughs> have you heard of, have you heard of the dance your thesis initiative?
1: Yeah. That's yeah, fun too. Yeah.
0: I always share that with my students as well. Karen, have you heard of that?
1: No, I haven't. I'll have to,
0: I'll show Google you it. some links with you. <laughs> so, I think it's still going every year. I don't, I don't even know the organization that, that it's housed in, but you know, mm-hmm. they, they get these, I think it's global. They get submissions from all around the world of, of people who've created these very elaborate dance routines about PhD theses and master's theses. Oh, wow. They're quite interesting. <laughs> We're off on a far tangent here, but.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Um, I was wondering, actually, before you know, just in the final few moments, if I could ask you um, a policy question I, again. Kind of just going back, and maybe we can edit it in back um, on the rails. But um, no, I was just curious to to get your perspective on kind of the intersection between climate and and plastics. You know, they're a petrochemical product, and with this this drafting of this new UN potential um, convention or agreement. Do you see any intersection there between um, those two communities and and, and sort of the the policy worlds or the policy landscape, I guess?
2: Yeah, I think more and more I am seeing them be discussed together um, because, as you said, I think they come from the the same feedstock we use often to make conventional energy or oil is what we use to make plastic. Just like we have greenhouse gas emissions going into the environment, we have plastic emissions, you know, that our waste littering i think of it as an emission going into our environment especially with microplastics it's easy to picture it that way um and i think just like with climate change it's a bit of a wicked problem and that we can't stop making energy you know we need we do there is there's a lot of benefit to plastic right we just need to be mm-hmm. using it right and making it right and wasting it right um so i think there's a lot of synergies and i think that's why you know you said i hope it's not a paris agreement and i think the reason you're saying that is because not working very well. It doesn't have Mm -hmm. teeth. Um, And I agree with that. But at the same time, the reason it would fit is because you could have a baseline emission and a target to reduce it. And there's so many different solutions that have to happen in parallel, but you have to have at the core, just like we need a new energy industry, we need a new plastic industry. Mm -hmm. And so how do you give that teeth and they have an under the paris accord and i don't know how you do and then can you also have like a plastic tax or something to help pay for a lot of what you need so mm-hmm. i think there's a ton of parallels to climate change and um you know i was really on board with like maybe it should look like a paris agreement until i had this interesting conversation with wwf where i think they convinced me of the stockholm-esque one
1: mm-hmm. um
2: so mm-hmm. i don't know but in any ways to answer your question Yes, there's a lot of parallels. I think people are starting to look into that a lot. And I've even heard people say to me like, oh, you study climate. And I'm thinking, well, I don't think I do. (laughs) But I think people are starting to even lump them together. So, Mm. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean that you know, there, are certainly separate problems in a, in a way, but, and we, ha- we have that problem with, you know, ozone depletion and climate change as well, that things just kind of get conflated, but they're, they're interrelated in so many, in so many ways. So, uh, interesting to see. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, um, curious to see what the final draft, uh, will look like. Me too. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thanks for, uh, um, having that final serious question. <laughs> no problem. I don't fully know
2: the answer to that one, but because I'm still figuring that out as well, that Mm -hmm. kind of synergy, but
1: definitely there's a lot. And so are you involved in, in this process or?
2: So sort of, um, not as much right now with what's happening. I was involved in the beginning when we were trying to basically show that there was enough science to suggest that they should move forward in this path. So I've been to like previous UN meetings and, given testimony and I was part of kind of their version, it wasn't IPCC report, but like their version of a science Mm -hmm. report that informed this, but now they're in the negotiating phase. And even though I've contacted our government and said, like, I'd be interested and, you know, shared my opinion, I have yet to be at Mm -hmm. a negotiating table, but, Mm -hmm. and I don't even know if I have time, but I'm just fascinated. So (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I would love to be able to see it and be part of the process. But for now, I'm, I'm not at this moment. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Chelsea, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. It's amazing to see the work you're doing. And as we said earlier, it's it's this fascinating burgeoning field. And we look forward to seeing the research that you'll be producing in the future.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for highlighting it. And thanks for inviting me. Mm-hmm. This was fun.
0: All right.